Thank you for listening to a Wednesday night class from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these classes or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com. And now, here's this week's class. All right, you may be seated. Thank you for playing the game so well. A couple of, a little bit of family business before we get going, and then I'm going to pray. And uh, uh, we've, uh, as we mentioned on Sunday, Michael DeFazio is here tonight, and he's going to talk to us about a very intriguing topic, the theology of work. How does that play into, especially Americans, how does that play into our worldview? How does it affect why we do what we do and how much we do of what we do and and all that's uh, within this? And Michael sent me some notes this summer of a similar seminar, so when he pitched the idea to us, I snagged it. I said, yep, that's yours. Because uh, I'm really intrigued to hear what he's going to say. Several things. Uh, this isn't just for the people here tonight, but it's also for people that listen to this on podcast. And we're getting a lot of good comments about that for people who can't make it on a Wednesday night. If you come and go and you don't, you're not here one particular night and can't get the notes, uh, note tonight that there'll be a table out in the foyer to pick up any notes from previous sessions you may not have been able to get your hands on. Some people have asked for clean copies. Uh, So all of that will be located at the end of each night out on a table in the foyer. Please help yourself to that. Uh, We want those uh, resources to be available. You notice when you came in tonight, there are four tables toward the back. So feel free to pick a hand up or handout if you didn't get one. There's a number on the screen. And uh, if you have a question from something Michael's talking about tonight or you want some follow-up on, please text uh, that number Uh, with your question and your comments, even if it takes two or three texts to get it there, feel free to do that. Uh, We may not answer it this evening. There may be a better placement for that in the series. What we will try to direct your question either directly back to you by text or from stage as appropriate to the topic of the night. Uh, We had some really good ones. There was a deep theological question sent to me uh, last week. What's the matter with the Cubs? We don't have enough time. It's, it's only a 10-week session, uh, and if I knew, don't you think I'd fix it? So uh, if you want to hurt my heart, send those things. If you want to pay attention to what Michael's doing, direct it toward that, and we'll do our best at the end to kind of connect all of that. Um, I, Brad, is that what I was supposed to do? <laughs> I gave me the thumbs up, which means be quiet. All right, I can do that. Uh, let's pray that God gets in this room what he wants tonight, and then Michael will come and teach. Father, we thank you that for each and every person who was able to safely make it out here tonight, I'm grateful for their health, I'm grateful for their interest, and I'm grateful that they find you important enough to give up valuable time in an evening to come together and be challenged. And God, we realize you call us to yourself, and uh, when we listen, it's a joyous thing to be able to come into your presence and learn. Uh, I'm grateful for my friend Michael from the time I met him 10 or 12 years ago, it seems, to today. I'm just amazed that the, the mind, the intelligence, and the vision for your church that you've given him. I pray tonight that you'll use him, that you'll give him thoughts and his preparation and his notes to teach us well, but not only teach us well, but to open our eyes to the kingdom and how we might serve you and honor you uh, in a new and beautiful way. So for tonight and the opportunity we get uh, just to be together as the church, we thank you because it comes from you, and we're grateful. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. I can tell you the problem with the Cubs is that the St. Louis Cardinals are just better. Can I get an amen from somebody? Yeah. 
Yeah, I'm going to tell you a story real quick in light of that. And I'm just telling you right now, I'll probably use this again at some point on a Sunday morning if they continue to ask me to come back. So you can just act like you've never heard it. So one time there was this third grade class, right? And this teacher is talking to her class. And for whatever reason, she's talking about how she's part of Cubs Nation. Some of y'all heard this before. And so she's going on and on about how she's part of Cubs Nation. And there's this, you know, nationwide uh, group of fans of the Chicago Cubs and all this. And so then she asks her students, how many of you are part of Cubs Nation? And then don't really have any idea what she's talking about, but they want to please their teacher, so they all raise their hand. Everybody puts their hand up, oh, part of Cubs Nation, part of Cubs Nation, except for this one girl named Christy. Christy's in the middle of the room, and she doesn't put her hand up, and the teacher probably should have just let it go, but she says, Christy, why isn't your hands up? And Christy says, well, I'm not part of Cubs Nation. So why aren't you part of Cubs Nation? She said, because I'm a proud St. Louis Cardinals fan, and she beat her heart twice just like this, you know? And so at this point, the teacher really should have just moved on, but she, for whatever reason, was, I don't know if she was annoyed by this or, or, or what, but so she asked her, well, why are you a Cardinals fan? And little Christy said, well, because, you know, my mom's a Cardinals fan and my dad's a Cardinals fan, so I'm a Cardinals fan. And so no joke, at this point, the teacher says, well, what if your dad was a moron and your mom was a moron? What would that make you? And without hesitating, Christy said, that would make me part of Cubs Nation. <laughs> So I don't know if Chad Ragsdale's here tonight, but you can tell him I said that. So, hey, I'm very, very excited to be here. I'm very much looking forward to tonight. This has become a real, real passion of mine. And I try not to overuse that phrase, but this has become a real passion of mine, this idea of thinking about work appropriately from a Christian perspective. And I'll tell you why. Um, And I'll tell you more about why here in a moment, but experientially, this came out of, you know, I spent eight years in in local church ministry before I came back to teach at the college, and one of the ways that I sort of started to notice that we were failing uh, each other as a church was helping people understand how work and God uh, go together. And ever since I started to realize, particularly as I was ministering to to men in different parts of the workforce and helping them understand the connection between some of these things, it's just, as I said, become a real uh, part of how I want to serve the church. And so Mark mentioned that I had a couple opportunities to to teach on some of this stuff this summer. And honestly, I knew this was coming. And seriously, like, I don't always feel this way, but I've been so looking forward to this night since we put it on the calendar that I just kind of use these other instances in order to sharpen things for you. So this is for you and I hope that you're blessed by this. Here's what I want us to do for starters. To get ourselves thinking about work, I want you to, um, and you won't, I won't, you won't do this a whole lot tonight, but I want you to do it some up the front here. I want you to get into little small groups there where you're seated, and I want you to talk through the first two of the questions that are on the opening discussion part. So let me tell you what the questions are, and then I'll give you just a couple minutes to share with one another what your answers are. First one's simple, best job or worst job you've ever had. Now, if you want to, if you don't want to talk about jobs you've had, then you can also switch it with this, like the best job you could have or like the worst job you could imagine having. So best job, worst job, you can take it in terms of your past or what you may think is true about your future. That's the first question I want you to talk about. And then the second one is, here's how it's worded on there. To what extent would it be hard for you to never earn another dollar and why? Here's the question. If you knew that you would be taken care of, so your needs would be met, And this is just a personal question, right? To what extent would you be okay with the fact that you yourself would never be responsible for bringing in another single dollar into your home, into your family, into your own life? So you're taken care of, but you're not earning any money. Let's just talk about that a little bit here from the start. So I'm going to give you a couple minutes. uh, Take those two questions, groups of three to five-ish. No need to be legalistic about it. Get into these semi-small groups and then uh, talk through those things. Then we'll come back together as a group.
All right, let me hear some of these best and worst. We'll let the answers to the second one stay within your group, but I want to hear some of these best and worst jobs that you've ever had or ever think you could have. Let me hear a couple of the best, but then let's be honest, what we really all want to hear is the worst. So a couple of best, though. Best job you've ever had. Who wants to volunteer and go ahead and, and holler this out for us? Yes, sir. Tank systems maintainer. Tank systems maintainer. I don't even know what that is, but it sounds like a wonderful time, so... Yeah, okay, so real tanks, not like tanks of like liquid, but like tank tanks. Yeah, okay, yeah, you feel mainly after that, that's for sure, okay. Yeah, no doubt. What else? Other best jobs that you've had? Yes, sir. Teaching. Okay, how many of you said some, how many of you are teachers or have been teachers that teach? Okay, good. I would agree, I love teaching as well, good. Other best jobs, maybe one more. How about one of our ladies in the audience or in, in the room? Yes. A nurse. Okay, good. Yeah, good. So let me hear some of the worst jobs you've ever had. Who thinks that they may have had the worst job in the room? What's yours? They're pointing to you. This is why I love this question. Anytime you ask it, somebody always points at somebody else. So what was your worst job? I worked at a juice factory for 20 minutes. You worked? <laughs> what you need to know is that she had the job for 20 minutes if you didn't hear her. That's kind of... <laughs> So a juice factory, it's 120 degrees. You walk in and you turn around and walk out. I, I, well, no, I walked in there and I had to put a hairnet on, which I, you know, I, I was a teenager. Yeah. So it wasn't cool. Yeah. And then um, it was like 120 degrees in there and I was having to move big pallets of juice. And I was like, uh-uh. yeah, this isn't for me. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So you left. Who are others? Worst job potentials in the room. Who else thinks they may have had the worst job in the room? Yes, ma'am. Detasseling corn? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, 10 feet tall corn. And the thing about corn is, if you work in corn, then there's a lot of it. You know what I mean? It's not just like, here's a plate full or here's a grill full. It's like, here's like an army full or something. Yeah, okay. Worst job I ever had, I actually saw my friend Drew Chris just walk in. When we were in high school, one of the many jobs we had together was we actually worked for a slumlord together in good old Tulsa, Oklahoma. This guy... I don't know that I realized at the time, he probably did how weird this man was. He had like a full room, not even kidding, a full room, like a room in his house full of, of like Nazi paraphernalia, like old flags and helmets and stuff. And he may have just been a history buff, but he also may have been a little crazy. All I remember about working for, I just remember a lot of things, most of, some of which I can't tell you, but one of the things I remember about working for him is he would go to collect rent. And he'd always had this, he has, remember Reggie White, Green Bay Packers, some of y'all football fans? He had this, this Reggie White by this time was, I think already retired, but he had this old worn down Reggie White jersey. He'd wear that and he'd wear some gym shorts and he'd walk up to the door with a gun in his pocket and his hand on the trigger. Like that's the kind of situation we're talking about. And then he'd send Drew and I, a couple other high school boys to these houses to take care of things. So we've all had good jobs. We've all had bad jobs. Or if we haven't, we could all imagine what it would be like to, to be in either of those situations. Here is our situation. One way or another, uh, we work. All of you work. If there's one thing that's true about Americans is that we are a people who work. Uh, what seems now like a long time ago, back in 1993, uh, Harvard professor Juliet Shore wrote a book called The Overworked American. She wrote a couple at this time, The Overspent American, The Overworked American. And one of the things that she, di uh, um, that she analyzed and dialogued about in this book was the fact that even in spite of all of the predictions about how much free time we'd have, and even in spite of all of the labor-saving technology that had been created, uh, we work more 
we work for longer hours in the week, we work for longer into our lives than at many other periods in American history. And what was true in 1993 is certainly still too true today. Uh, we work. And many of you have all different sorts of jobs. Some of you are in management, so you deal primarily with people and trying to make sure that they stay on task to do the things that they're supposed to do. Others of you are in accounting, and so you deal with numbers. Some of you are teachers, and so you work with students or nurses, and so you work in hospitals. Some of you have administrative-type jobs, and so you know, you're, you're dealing with data entry and spreadsheets and those kind of things. Others of you are, are moms or are dads. That is your job, and so you're dealing with dirty, grubby little kids that you're trying to keep like well-fed and alive you know, at the end of the day. And, Sometimes, like, that's a win. If the kids aren't dead, that's a win. By the end of the day, they're still around. That, that, that's what you do. And so, you know, doctors, lawyers across the board, we work. And in these various jobs, we have various tasks, some of which we feel significant, feel are significant, others of which sometimes feel, I don't know, mundane, menial. It's sort of the mundane scale. You probably have aspects of your day that fiddle all the way along it. For some of you, you stare at spreadsheets all day. Again, others, it's numbers. Others, it's animals. Some, it's people. And what will happen to us as we go about the course of our lives working is we'll have the normal temptations that, you know, are present for any person trying to follow Jesus, pride, sloth, lust, all these greed, anger, these kind of things. But what I think is the more likely problem and really the scarier issue, what I think, if if there's a reason why you might actually drift in your faith, Not so much that you completely reject God, but so that you just sort of push him to the margins of your life. I don't think the primary reason is going to be any one of the traditional sins. And I don't think the primary reason is just because you're really bad or you don't really love God or you're lazy or you don't care. I think the primary reason that many of us may drift from centering our lives on Christ is that we get to a certain point, particularly with work, where we look at the things we're doing and we just kind of wonder what our normal nine to five has to do with the mission of Jesus. I think this is something that eventually happens to all of us. There's a certain point where you're going about your business, whatever it is, and you think to yourself, how is this connected to God? Is he paying attention to this? Does he value this? Does he care about this? Is this what I should be doing? Maybe, you're, maybe your job is to talk to people who are about to lose their jobs, and you've got another person coming in who's about to get fired, and you have to tell them, and you're thinking to yourself, shouldn't I be somewhere else telling somebody about Jesus? Or maybe your job is to write paperwork. How many of you have to do with paperwork? Maybe your job is to just sort of facilitate the the flow of paperwork from one office to another, and you're doing the same form for a thousandth time, and you're thinking to yourself, should I just instead like be reading my Bible or doing something spiritual? And I think all of us at some point in our lives, if we're trying to follow Jesus, we ask the question, what does my work life have to do with my spiritual life? And when we ask this question, typically what I've seen is we have one of three responses. One response that we sometimes uh, do, one response that we sometimes respond with is that we choose the spiritual over the secular. And we say, well, yes, like I'm not going to do this. I'm going to walk away from this and I'm just going to devote all my time to what I feel like is spiritual work. I'm going to walk away from this career and I'm going to try to get a job at a church. Or I'm going to forget about my paperwork and I'm just going to go read my Bible in the break room or whatever it may be. We choose the spiritual over the secular. Concretely, in terms of what we're doing with our time, we walk away from what we were doing. We think, I'm going to do something that feels to me like it's obviously connected to God. A second typical response is that we choose the secular over the spiritual. I can't walk away from this job. I can't sort of just leave this behind. I can't walk away from my career and that which provides for my family's livelihood. Therefore, I guess I can't be spiritual. 
I can't not do this paperwork. I don't have time to read the Bible more than I do. Therefore, I guess full-on discipleship is not available to me. And so, not necessarily because we want to, but because we feel like we have to, we sometimes choose the secular over the spiritual. And the third response, and this is probably the most common one, this is the one that most of us fall into, is that we don't choose either over the other, but we compartmentalize our life. And so there's certain times and portions of our week when we think, now I'm doing God stuff. When I go to church, I'm doing God stuff. When I you know, have my small group, I'm doing God stuff. When I wake up and have my you know, 15 minutes of Bible reading or whatever, maybe it's an hour of study in the morning, I, that's my God stuff. But then these other portions of our life is when I do my like, non-God stuff. Not like I'm trying to totally just reject him, but at the end of the day, this is the part of my life that isn't directly connected to him. We compartmentalize our lives. And we say that certain parts of it have to do with God and other parts of it just don't. And I gotta be honest with you, I'm not okay with any of these options. I think that they're all a mistake. Now, there may be times when it is appropriate for us to walk away from certain responsibilities, certain tasks, certain dreams, because God is calling us to a specific action. There are times when we should say, you know, I've done enough work for the day. I should go talk to somebody about Jesus, or I should go make sure my kids are reading the Bible story at night, or I should go read the Bible myself. And there are times when God may be calling you away from your career to go do something crazy for him, to go be a missionary to another land, or something like that. There may be times when that's happening, but as a general rule, I think that all of these options are problematic. I think that more often than not, God doesn't want to pull you out of your situation. He wants to send you back into your situation in a unique way. And I think if we're going to get our hands around this, it's going to be because we establish a Christian view of work, a theology of work, what it looks like to think about work from within a Christian worldview. That's my goal tonight is to push us further along that spectrum of understanding how our work life is connected with our spiritual life. Here's how we're going to do that. I've got two teaching portions. The first one, I'm just going to tell you five things. This is the really, this is the kind of the Christian worldview part. This is the part where we're just going to look at the scriptures and we're going to try to try to analyze together what is a Christian view of work. I'm going to make five points with some sub points under some of those. Then we're going to pause and I want to have some dialogue. Now, as we go through this, there may be times when we, t- you know, write some things up on the board based on your questions, but for the most part, we're going to leave this number up on the screen because as I'm talking, I want you to feel absolute freedom, and I even want to urge you a little bit, if you have a question, text it into that number. Now, I will stop and ask if you have questions, and if you want to ask them in this setting, that's fine, but this is a large room, and some of you know that you're far away, and you not want to yell, so I totally get that. We're fine with that. That's why the number's there. So we're going to pause in the middle, leave some time for question and answer, and then the back end, the second part of the teaching is when I'm just going to offer some action steps, some practical things for you to do. Some, so, so if this is all true, what next? And I'm going to give you 10 of those. And at the end, depending on how much time we have left, we'll deal with any other questions that come up. So that, may, that sound good to you guys? You guys ready to roll? All right, let's talk about a Christian view of work. As I said, I want to make five points. Here's the first point I want to make. And if you want to follow along in your handout, this is where you can fill in the blanks and so on and so forth. Here it is. Number one, work is a good part of God's original design for us. Work is a good part of God's original design for us. I think this is the appropriate foundation to start with if we're going to understand work from a Christian, from a biblical standpoint. So let's talk about this a little bit. What do we mean for one thing when we say work? 
For instance, as I've talked about work, I've tried to, I hope you've picked up on this, be careful to include not necessarily just what we would consider to be a job, right? In our culture, being a mom or being a dad, even if it's a full-time thing, isn't recognized as a job per se, because for us, jobs connected to income. I'm not talking when I say work about that which brings in an income. That's a part of it, and we'll talk about that. But what I mean, give you a simple definition for what I mean by work. What I mean very simply is productive effort or intentional effort. You're doing things to try to accomplish something, or you're doing things to try to produce something. I think that we could go with the technical definitions, but you can look up Webster's.com just as easily as I can, and you can see those there. When we talk about work, that's essentially what we're talking about. Intentional effort, where we do something in order to create something, or produce something, or accomplish something. That's work. So here are some of the things I want to say about work and building out this idea that it is a good part of God's original design for us is, first of all, that work existed before the fall. Now, if you're new to the faith and something like the fall is a statement you've not heard, uh, there's no shame in that. Let me briefly explain to you what we mean by that. We believe that God created us. And in the book of Genesis, which is our first book of the Bible, we have the story about Adam and Eve, the first human couple, and God puts them in a garden, as we'll talk about, and he says, I, I just, you can eat from all the trees except for this one tree. And then Adam and Eve eat from that tree, and as a result, humanity becomes corrupted. That's what we call the fall. What I'm saying here, you may know that story quite well, is that work existed before the fall. If you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, go ahead and take them out, because we're going to read some scriptures together. Uh, We're going to be camping out mostly in the first couple of chapters of Genesis. Now, I've got other verses that I may mention or paraphrase or even read, but for our purposes, I want to focus ourselves in this section on these first chapters in Genesis, and I want to read from Genesis chapter 2, starting in verse 4. I'm going to read on to verse 9, and I'm going to read also verse 15. Here's the point I'm making here, is that before anything went wrong, while we're still in a world that has not been at all corrupted by sin, one of the things that we see is work. Genesis chapter 2, starting in verse 4. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created, when the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Now no shrub had yet appeared on the earth, and no plant had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth, and there was no one to work the ground. But streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. And then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed life into his nostrils, breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. Now the Lord had planted a garden in the east, in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees go out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food, and in the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Jump down to verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. Right there before anything goes wrong, we see work. And what happens next, if you don't know the story, is that the first negative word is spoken about creation, which is, it's not good for him to be alone. I must make a helper suitable for for him. And then the woman is created, and they together are given this task of work. So notice from the start that work cannot be a result of corruption. Work cannot be a result of sin. It is a part of God's world before the fall. C, God, in whose image we are created, works. If you read in Genesis 1, and I'll just paraphrase this portion, you've probably heard that the Bible teaches that we were created in the image of God, right? And what I want you to notice is we're creating the image of God, and this happens in the context of God working. How do we know that God was working? Well, because on day seven, he rested, and you only rest if you've been working, Rest isn't rest unless it's compared to work. And so God, in whose image we were created, works. 
1D, work is how we cultivate creation's fruitfulness. This is more about this idea of working in the garden and caring for it. And some of the words there can actually be translated cultivate. This idea of serving the garden by cultivating what's coming out of it. And if you think about our work, each one of our work, that's, that's what it's doing. It, you know, think about it, and specifically we talk about like corn or this agricultural type job. Your job is quite obviously to cultivate what God has created. You're taking it and you're working it and you're caring for it and you're taking these raw materials and you're turning them into something good. But at the same time, all these other jobs are cultivating as well. If you're a teacher, then you're taking information, right, which has been provided to us by God, and you're teaching it to children who have been provided for us by God. And in doing this, you're cultivating the fruitfulness of creation. This is what work does, is it takes what God has put here, and it creates with it. It takes the materials that God has provided, and it turns them into something beautiful. It turns them into something good. And work is how we do this. The woman was created to help the man do specifically this. So even if you think I'm not a creative type, by which you mean, I, like for me, whenever, you know, whenever we're doing worship and they're like, oh, let's clap now. For me, it's like, dang, I gotta make a choice now. It's either singing or clapping because I can't do both of them at the same time, you know? It just doesn't work for me because I don't have a rhythm. And so maybe you think, well, I'm not creative. I couldn't dance, I couldn't play, I couldn't write a poem. No, you are creative because every single thing that you do work-wise is technically speaking creative. So again, under this idea that work is a good part of God's original design for us, what we've seen is that work existed before the fall, that God in his image we were created works, and that work is how we cultivate creation's fruitfulness. Conclusion, work is good. It's not a curse, which is what the ancient Greeks thought. It's not a necessary evil, which is what a lot of people think. It's not a show of status, which is what we tend to think in our world. It's not just a means of making money, which is, again, what we tend to think in our context. Work is good. Now, think about this, though. At the same time, we do at times think, as human beings, that work is a curse, that work is nothing but a status symbol, that work is a necessary evil. Why? Why is it that when I say what's the best job you've ever had, we can't all raise our hands and say, well, precisely what I'm doing right now? Well, that takes us to the second point. Why is it that when I say what's the worst job you've ever had, we can raise our hands and say, oh, I remember what that was? It's because of the second point. Our our experience of work has been distorted by our fall into sin. Our experience of work has been distorted by our fall into sin. Turn with me just over to the next page in Genesis. I'm going to read from chapter 3, and I'm going to pick it up in verse 17. Now, what's happened in the meantime is they were put in this garden to work for it, and they were told you can eat from the fruit of all the trees, except stay away from from the fruit that comes from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Long story short, he's saying, trust me to tell you what's good and evil. You don't need to go find out for yourself. And the human beings listen to the voice of the serpent and say, no, we want to eat the fruit. So they eat the fruit. And now what we're going to look at in the back half of chapter three is the curses that result from humanity's sin. And what I want you to notice is that at the very core of this, at the very beginning of this process of the curse, the corruption that's brought on by sin, what we see is that work is impacted. Chapter three, verse 17, to Adam, he said, Because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you are taken, for dust you are, and to dust you will return. Does the ground not produce thorns and thistles for you? I know it has for me. 
And so we need to acknowledge right up front that whereas work is good, our experience of it has been distorted by sin. Let me point out a couple of things in this regard. What does this mean? This means, for starters, you might hate work. Now, for some of you, you don't hate work at all. Like, how many of you are just acknowledging I'm a lazy person? I don't know if, you know, many of you in this room would say that. My students, I ask this, and a lot of them raise their hands. And that's true, because they are lazy. So how many of you would say, if I'm being honest, I just, I don't like work? This is good. I'm glad I'm not seeing very many hands. That means that this is a mature audience. So, but there's times when we, some of you might hate work. More, more, more true for, for most of us, it's not necessarily that we're going to hate work as a whole. It may be that we hate our particular work or that for a season of our life, we find ourselves in a situation where we're having to do something that we don't enjoy doing. It doesn't produce life for us. It doesn't produce joy for us. It's hard. Another thing that this might mean to be is you might idolize work. It might not be that you hate it. It might be that you love it too much, and it becomes the thing that defines you. We're going to talk about that a few times tonight. It is always the good gifts that, are t- that tend to be turned into idols, especially for people who know the Lord. We take the good things that he's given us, and then we allow them to become uh, more our Lord, more our leader, more our master than God himself. You might idolize work. Another result of this is that you might do everything right and still see no fruit. This is important for those of you who think that if things don't go well, that means you did something wrong. That's not necessarily true. You may have, I mean, I'm not saying you never did, but it's quite possible in a world that where work has been distorted by sin that you could be given a dream about a particular job and you could play, play your cards right and work your tail off and do everything right and it's still not work out. You don't get the job. You fall into a different career. You find yourself in a pattern where you're not getting to do what it is you wanted to do, what it is that you set out to do, or you're getting to do what you set out to do and it's nothing like what you think. So you might do everything right and still see no fruit. Another consequence of this is that your industry is corrupted and fallen. I don't care how much you love it, you need to know this. Whatever you do, it's broken. And this is, this is and Mark can tell you, this is true of church work as well. I mean, most, most students, when they graduate from the college, go out into ministry. I know at some level, this was me. I went into working for the church, expecting one thing, and then I realized very quickly, this is a different thing. Every industry in which you're a part of is broken. And so we can't ever put our blinders on and act like whatever, the, whatever work asks of me is good. Whatever decisions my industry makes or my field makes or my company makes, those are wholesome decisions. We can't ever assume that. We should always maintain some level of critical distance from our work because we recognize that it's been tainted by sin. Last point on this that I want to make is just the general one. Your work will be hard. Now, By hard in this case, I mean hard as in negative, hard as in frustrating, hard as in burdensome, hard as in toilsome in a way that isn't good. There's a sense in which work work is supposed to be hard, and that's part of its benefit for us. That's part of its beauty. But there's also the sense in which because sin has corrupted it, work will be hard in a very negative sense. So those are the two primary points that I want to put on the board. One, work is good because it was created by God as a gift for us, part of his original design. And then secondly, work has been corrupted by sin, our experience of it in particular. Let me now walk through these last three a bit more quickly so that you understand what I would consider to be five of the primary components of a theology of work. Number three, Jesus came to redeem, among other things, work. Jesus came to redeem, among other things, work. Recognize what the metaphor redeem means. It has multiple associations, but the basic idea is that you buy something back. 
uh, in the ancient world, it was the word that was used of, of buying someone out of slavery. You buy them back and you restore them to what they were originally supposed to be. Jesus redeemed, among other things, work. He's bought it back from sin. Couple points under here. One, Jesus worked. We see this in Mark uh, chapter 6, verse 3. We talk about how he's the carpenter's son, which would mean he himself was a carpenter. If you don't think that, uh, that work has been blessed by God, then you need to explain the fact that God's own son was a construction worker for 30 years of his 33-year life. I don't know how you make an argument that work isn't a part of life with God when you look at Jesus. He worked. He says in John 5, 17, my father is always at work to this very day, and I too am working. He says in John chapter 17, to the Father, I have completed the work you have given me to do. So Jesus worked. And secondly, Jesus redeemed work for us. We know this in part because of what we see in Colossians chapter 1, which is that Jesus redeems everything, that Jesus reconciles all things back to God in their original purpose, and this would include work. We also note when we look in places like the book of Revelation that the picture of heaven, this picture of new creation, this picture of our lives in eternity is not just thank God that we'll be sitting on clouds playing harp singing songs all the time. For me, that would be more like the other place. When we look at the book of Revelation, thankfully, a major part of what we'll be doing is serving God by ruling. We will be working in the same way that we were originally designed to work. So Jesus came to redeem, among other things, work. Number four, different people are built for and called to different kinds of work. Different people are built for and called to different kinds of work. This may be obvious, but it needs to be stated so that we all recognize that there should be no profession that we look at and think to ourselves, if God really liked me, that's what I would be doing. That is never true, necessarily. It, again, might be true in your case if you know that God is calling you to do something other than what you're doing. But you should never look at another profession and think to yourself, if I were really close to God, that's obviously what I would be doing because everybody who does that is closer to God. That's not how it works. Now, I want you to think about this in terms of the difference between our world and their world. Remember, this whole idea of worldview is becoming aware of what we don't necessarily think about, the lens that we look through all the time. I don't think about my glasses when they're on my face because they're what I look through. And I had an experience, I was telling some of my friends about this last week, I had an experience recently. Um, basically, what we're trying to do this entire series is get you to realize how weird you are without knowing it, kind of and get you to rethink the nature of your weird so that it's a good weird and not a bad weird. And so recently I was in one of my classrooms and I had, to, I had the students do some group exercises and then I had to get them out of there because they had to go to chapel. So I said, you guys get out of here, I'll fix the chairs. So they leave, I'm putting the chairs back in order and I look over into the corner and I notice that there's a full length mirror in the corner. Now I, we don't have a full length mirror in our house. So if I'm looking at the mirror, I'm probably like three feet away from it and I can see myself from waist up. And I look up in this mirror and I see myself and I'm looking at it and I'm thinking, to my, that, something has to be wrong with that mirror. So I go look at the mirror, and sure enough, nothing's wrong with it. So I back up and I look at it again. And that's when I realized, this is kind of sad that it took me this long. I'm like skinnier than a normal average American male. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, I'm just weird. And I go to chapel, this, and I'm still thinking about this. I go to chapel, and one of the professors stands up, and he's preaching. And he's not like a large man, but I'm like, man, I don't look like that. So what I want for you in this sense is for us to recognize, no, we need to actually think about what we may think without thinking. And in this sense, here's my point with work being made for different kinds of people. In our society, in a democratic capitalistic society, and I'm not saying this is bad, but in our society, generally speaking, we get to choose what we want to do. When we're growing, you know, you, what do you ask your kids as they, as they come of age? What do you want to do when you grow up? And I want us to recognize the fact that for most of human history, that's kind of weird. That it wouldn't necessarily be true that you just sort of get to choose what you do. 
Typically, you would just become whatever your father did or whatever your mother did. The path was laid out for you. You just step into it. Now, I'm not saying we should go back to that. I'm just saying let's notice that the way we think about work, historically speaking, is somewhat unique. And here's what I want to say about work in this particular regard from a biblical standpoint. Two things. I want us to recognize that work is directed by gifting from the Holy Spirit. That it's the Holy Spirit that enables us to, to do certain things. Now, when you say, when I talk about the gifts of the Spirit... I don't know what you think about. Maybe you think about speaking in tongues. Maybe you think about prophecy. Maybe you think about the gift of mercy or the gift of teaching. What I want you to know is that the very first time the Bible talks about someone being gifted by the Spirit, someone being filled by the Spirit, it's in the book of Exodus, two places, chapter 31 and 35, and there's two men who are being talked about in this regard. Their names are Bezalel and Oholiab. I wouldn't recommend naming your children after them. And the thing that these two men are gifted for is construction of the tabernacle is the making of the place for God's worship. So again, it's not like I have this, you're gonna think I like had this weird dream of being a construction worker. That'd be kind of awesome, although I think I'd have to be a little bit, you know, I'd gain some muscle in that regard. So what I want you to notice though, first time the spirit fills a person and gifts them to do something, he doesn't gift them to stand up in front of a group of people and talk. He doesn't enable them to pray in a way that's super spiritual that everybody looks at and goes, clearly he knows God. He doesn't enable them to be really nice to people who are in need, though that is a wonderful gift that I do not have. What he does is he enables them to build stuff. So what I want you to recognize that you have been gifted by the Spirit, you have been wired by the Spirit, you have been built for specific kinds of work. That is a concept that we need to lock into our brains. And a second concept we have to lock into our brains, and this comes from the Scriptures, but especially through certain aspects of church tradition in a good way, and that's that we need to recapture the idea of, of work as a calling or work as a vocation. We use the word vocation, and typically we don't think of that as being like a religious word at all. We don't think of that as being a spiritual concept. Well, what's your vocation is another word for what's your job, what's your profession, what's your career. And what I want you to know is that, historically speaking, this comes straight out of church teaching. Because the root of the word vocation is the Latin word vocare, which means to call. The word vocation literally is, a, is another word for calling. In other words, somebody called you to do this. And one of the things that the reformers, like John Calvin and especially Martin Luther, recaptured as they were looking back to the scriptures to define the faith is that we shouldn't look at this as some people are called to be monks and priests and other people just sort of piddle around out here. No, we should recognize that all people are called to their various kinds of work. And so in that sense, what I want you to know is whether you're a teacher or a nurse or a veterinarian or a lawyer or a doctor or an accountant or a mom or any number of jobs or tasks or roles, that is for you a calling. That is the place where God wants to work in you. That is the place where God wants to work through you. That is the place where God wants you to be. So when we think about work, we should recognize that in order for us to be a faithful church, it must be true that we are involved in all different kinds of work. In order for us to accomplish the work that the Spirit wants to accomplish as Christ Church of Ornogo, we can't all do the same thing. We must all be doing different things because that is specifically why we were created. Last point I want to make on this, and this one's fairly obvious, so I don't need to go into too much detail. The old, and now, this, the, given that this is the last point, be thinking about questions you may have, because I want to dialogue as much as, you, as much as is helpful for you. Number five, the ultimate purpose of our work is to honor and please God. Like, duh, right? But let's make sure we say it. And let's make sure we say this in contrast to some other options. Because if the ultimate purpose of our work is to honor and please God, 
then that means the ultimate purpose of our work is not to please a human master. This is straight out of Colossians 3. You don't work to please the person who's over you. If you like them, your job, remember, is not to make them happy. If you don't like them, your job, remember, is not to make them happy, nor is your job to make them miserable. There, at some level, they're not the point because you are serving a higher Lord. So our goal is not to please a human master, but rather to bring glory and honor to God. It's also not to make a name for ourselves or for our group. Some of you are in the industry that you're in. Some of you went into the career that you're in because you like the idea of being that, whatever that is. You like the idea of having the title that you have. You like the status that comes along with that. Or maybe you started your own company. And for some of you, this isn't the case. So I'm not saying everybody who, did, who has started their own company is this way. But for some of you, you started your own company because you wanted the glory. And what I'm saying to you is that biblically speaking, the purpose of work is not to make a name for yourself. It's not so that you can get your name on the door or in somebody else's mouth. It is not to make a, a name for your group whether it be your particular company or your particular industry or your particular group of people, whatever that means, that's not the goal. Also, see, it means that the purpose of work is not to make a profit. A profit is directly connected to work. And again, like I said, we'll talk about money. But what we need to start with is the recognition that the ultimate purpose is not to make some money. For us, the bottom line is not the bottom line. And then point D, restating this, work is an act of worship. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, do it all to the glory of God. And if you can eat or drink to the glory of God, then you can work to the glory of God. And ultimately, because all of life is an opportunity for us to reflect God's image, an opportunity for us to worship, work is certainly no different. We have been given the opportunity to honor and please God with our work, and that is what we've been called to do. Now, let me pause. Let me just leave a minute of silence. I want you to look back at the notes. I want you to think about what we've been talking about. I'm not gonna have you stand up and stretch because I don't want to be condescending, but if you need to stretch, go ahead and do it. I know we're getting later in the evening. Think about this. Think about what questions you may have. Have any questions come in there? All right, let's start with those and then we'll see what others you may have. Mark, what do you got? Um, the more we work, the more money we make. Yeah. Great question, and I'll just go ahead and answer these questions, even if it's stuff I'm gonna talk about momentarily in the notes, and then we'll kind of say, hey, that's what I talked about. So the question was address the concept of balance. I'm hearing it in terms of particularly of money. What's the balance there? One of the things that I wanna say about money is, it's not the point, but it's also not a bad thing. It's part of work, it's just not the ultimate purpose of work. Now, in the ancient world, in the biblical world, they didn't have money economies in the same way that we do. So when they talk about money, it's different. It was, in, in, certain, in most cases, more about like the exchange of goods and services and that kind of thing. But basically, the idea with money is this. Um, I would say what we know is we are responsible for the people we're responsible for. I know that's kind of like a dub, but here's what I mean. First Timothy 5.8, for instance, says that a person who doesn't take care of their family, especially their own immediate family, has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. That tells me that I'm responsible for those that make up my immediate family. In Ephesians 4.28, Paul's talking about the life of people who are, who are in Christ, and he talks about how we should be prepared to give to those who are in need. 
And so I think, yes, we work to make money and we work to make money in order to take care of the people that we're responsible for and in order to help people in need. Now, I also want to say, uh, I'm, we're at 1 Timothy 6, I'm going to say 17, but it's somewhere around there. There's a verse there where Paul is talking to rich people or talking to Timothy about rich people. And one of the things he says, he says, command people who are rich to be generous to the poor and to put their hope in God who richly provides everything for our enjoyment. So one of the things I want to say is that, you know, God has made a good world and he has made a good world to be enjoyed. And money is part of enjoying God's good world. So should you feel guilty when you go on a family vacation? In my opinion, not at all. Should you feel guilty if all you ever do is spend money on the four people that you're most closely connected to? Yeah, I think so. I think that this is why the Bible talks about giving, and this is why the Bible talks about our our financial responsibility to the ministry of the church and and to the leaders of the church and and to the poor, those who don't have. So in terms of balance, you know, those are some basic principles, I would say, and then certainly we could take it more specific from there. Other questions? Yeah, good question. Um, The way I would, so he said retirement and profit. I don't have a problem with the concept of retirement. Here's what I, th- here's what I don't necessarily think is, is Jesus-like. And admittedly, I'm speaking as one who won't be there for a while. I don't, what, what doesn't feel Christ-like to me is the idea that when I hit a certain point, I don't have to think about anybody else. I can just do what I've always wanted to do. I mean, heaven is awesome, and we get to spend eternity doing things that are enjoyable to us, and we don't have that many years on this planet. So I don't know that God is particularly pleased when we think to ourselves, when I get to a certain age, it's no longer about serving other people, it's just about like serving me. That I think is unbiblical. But the idea of retirement in terms of I'm going to stop working a job so that I can, you know, love on my grandkids and offer to the next generation so that I can enjoy my husband or wife and and travel to places that we've wanted to see. I think all of that is fine and good. Again, God richly provides all these things for our enjoyment. But I think there's sort of a character piece there where if your mindset is we're just going to do what we want and that's the end of it, that to me is not God honoring. But the idea of saying at a certain point in life, we're going to stop working in an official way and then just devote ourselves to service in other ways, I think that's fantastic. I think that's entirely biblical. In terms of the concept of making a profit, now I'm guessing a little bit here at what specifically is meant by that. I don't think profit is bad. I just don't think profit is the point. What we need to take into account here are any number of biblical teachings when it comes to money. I just mentioned Paul in 1 Corinthians, or 1 Timothy 6, where he talks about commend people who are rich to, to do good and to put their hope in God and not trust in their wealth. How do we know if we're not trusting in our wealth? I know that's not necessarily easy. I would encourage you to reflect on like Matthew 6, where Jesus talks about not worrying. Remember, this is an imperative. Do not worry. In Philippians 4, Paul talks about do not be anxious. What we need to recognize there is that these are commands, which means if you break this command, you're sinning. Worry is sinful. Anxiety in the sense of, I don't think God's going to take care of me, at some level is stepping outside of God's best for us. So, but I know that's not the question. Directly, specifically asking the question about profit, I think that the question is not, should we try to make a profit? The question is, what are we doing with the profit that we make? That's the question. And the, the idea of being faithful with our money is not like, well, I give 10% to the church and therefore I do what I want with the 90. That's not how it works in the New Testament church. 
I heard one time this pastor talking about how he had some people visit his church and they came up to him after the service and they said, we need to know if this is a law church or a grace church. He said, what do you mean? We need to know if this is a law church or a grace church. He said, give me an example. I don't understand what you're talking about. He said, well, the church we came from, they were were a law church and they demanded that we give 10% or we can't be members at that church. So we want to know if this is a law church or a grace church. And the pastor's response was, oh, this is a grace church. We expect way more than that. (laughs) I love that story. I especially loved it when I worked for the church, but I still love it nonetheless. Um, and I think there's something to that, that 100% of the money that comes in is to be used in ways that honor God. We just need a broad concept of honoring God. You know what I mean? A God is honored when we enjoy the, you know, the, the foods and drinks that, that, that are, come from his creation. God is honored when we take care of the people who are close to us and enjoy life with them, so on and so forth. So yes, it's a balancing, it's a harmony thing. And this is the last thing I'll say on this, and we'll see if there's any other questions. This is why community is so important. Fact is, I'm, 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 like, I'm sinful, right? So that means I'm, I deceive myself. And that's why I need to be surrounded by other people who, who love the Lord and who know me so that they can help me see when I'm not really being honest with myself. You know what I mean? Not just people who are going to tell me what I want to hear, but people who are going to tell me what I need to hear. And I don't necessarily trust myself or any other particular individual or even married couple to be able to discern entirely on their own exactly how God would have them spend their time and money. I think that this is where community comes in and we discern some of these things together. Uh, So good questions. Any others for now? Any questions from you guys that these are bringing up? Or do we want to power through these other things? Let me give you a couple seconds to think about it. You have eight seconds to raise your hand. So if you've got a question, six. I'm not really going to count down. We good? Yes, back there. Yes, can I expand a little on question 4C? Let me look at question 4C. Oh, is that on there? Oh, I didn't realize I left that on the notes. Here, <laughs> that's funny. Uh, on mine, I have black and blue, and on mine, that's blue, which means I thought I took it off. Uh, 4C, how do you know what you should do? So when it comes to this question of work as directed by the gifting of the Holy Spirit or having to do with the calling, here are some of the questions that I would encourage you to ask as you're thinking about what you should do. And this is still relevant for us, no matter our ages. For starters, what are you naturally interested in? For instance, I'm a total nerd. I like sitting in an office with books and reading for long periods of time in order to figure out what the truth is about a given topic. That probably means that like the job of being a college professor is kind of a fit for me. You know what I mean? So start with what you're naturally interested in. Uh, Then I would also talk about what are you capable of? I mean, God's probably not calling you to do something. God's not calling me to be a professional weightlifter. You know what I mean? God's not calling me to be an NFL quarterback. It's just, it's, it's not necessarily in the cards for me. So what are you capable of? What do you enjoy? But then very importantly, here's another question I would encourage you to ask. How can you be of service? What particular thing can you offer to the world? And for those of you who think that you have nothing to offer, let me see your eyes if I could. I know I can't see all of you, but lock eyes with me for a moment, at least theoretically, and hear me say that if you're alive, you have something to offer. I don't know what it is, but it is something that is valuable for the people around you. God has not made a single person who doesn't have something to offer. Uh, you may take you a while to figure out what it is. It may not be something that other people value. Who cares? Other people are not, are not the point here. The point is you asking, who am I and what can I offer? So look around you. What are the needs that you can meet? I think if we started there, we'd probably have a lot more joy and we'd probably do a lot more good. You know, in baseball, they, I mean, you guys are baseball people. You, you, you laughed at the Cardinals joke, so you at least know what baseball is. 
So in baseball, they talk about the basic foundation, the foundational principles of hitting are see the ball, hit the ball. If you can see the ball, then you can hit the ball. And that's at the very simplest, that's what hitting is all about. See the ball, hit the ball. And in some sense, I think that like service is similar, see the need, meet the need. So with the question of how do you know, how did I word it on there? How do you know what you should do? Those are some of the things I would ask. What are you interested in? What are you capable of? And also there the community comes in. What are other people telling you you're good at? I can see this couple right down here. I was an intern at this church uh, 10, 11 years ago. And I was, I had no idea what I was doing, but I taught some classes. And I remember uh, friends like them coming up to me when I was a young guy saying, you're supposed to be a teacher. And that's how I knew, like, okay, I, I thought maybe this was something I was supposed to do, but this has confirmed it for me. I don't know if you guys remember that conversation, but I do. It, it's burned into my brain. And in this sense, I think sometimes the people around us say, you're supposed to do that. You're the one who's capable of this. My wife is capable of throwing incredible parties. And so I think that when it comes to evangelism, that's what she offers. As we reach out to our community, she's really good at creating get-togethers that are enjoyable for all, that enable us to, in non-awkward ways, talk to people who maybe don't know Jesus. So great question. I hope I've answered it a little bit. I'm glad you pointed that out. I forgot that was on there. Anything else? All right, let me power through these. We've got 15 minutes left on the timer, and I really do want to save some time at the end, either for you, know, you to go home or for us to dialogue about other things. This next part shouldn't necessarily take long. This, I hope, is a bit more practical. The first part is a bit headier, obviously. We're talking about trying to put on the proper lens. Here, though, are some things I would encourage you to think about in terms of what should you do. Number one, seek but do not demand work that brings you joy. Seek work that brings you joy. I think that this is perfectly fine, but don't demand it. Recognize that, you know, God, work is part of God's good gift, God's good design for us, and so it's perfectly proper to seek work that you enjoy. But recognize also that work is and will be until Jesus returns corrupted by sin. So you might not always enjoy what you're doing. Seek, but do not demand work that you enjoy. Seek work that you enjoy, but at the same time, be willing to do whatever it is that needs to be done. You may not be happy for any number of reasons. Oftentimes when we think we're not happy because of what we're doing, it actually has nothing to do with what we're doing. It has to do with what's going on in here. So seek but don't demand work that brings you joy. At number two, be honest about how sin has corrupted your work and make changes when necessary. Be honest about how sin has corrupted your work and make changes when necessary. Here's what I mean by this. Sometimes you gotta get out. Now, some examples are obvious. You know, if you come to the Lord and you are, and I don't mean to be provocative, but let's say you come to the Lord and you're a prostitute or you're a pimp or you're something that's, you're like a, like a stripper at a dance club, you need to walk away from your job and, and we'll help you find a new job. So some of these times it's obvious when the appropriate response is to recognize that this industry has gone further than can be redeemed, at least in terms of direct participation. So I'm getting out of it. Other times, though, it's not as easy. We make jokes about how lawyers are all bad. I mean, I'm not going to ask you, but some of you guys are in law, and you know better than us the sense in which some of those jokes are true, but at the same time, most of the time, there's redeemable aspects of this. But although you need to recognize when it's appropriate for you in, in an industry that may not be entirely sinful, you may need to look at that and say, because of the nature of where this has gone, or because of the nature of my company, or because of the nature of my own weakness and my inability to not be sinful when I'm there, I need to get out. And at the end of the day, that's the appropriate response, to get out. But more often than not, 
The appropriate response is not to entirely get out, it's to get well, it's to get right, it's to get fixed in that sense, and to focus on what's going on in here so that you can become a person who goes back into that same situation with redemptive power, with redemptive wisdom, and you may not make the same decisions that you made before, and you may actually not be as successful as you were before, or like Joseph, you may be even more successful than you were before. The, the, the outcome is not the point. The point is that you're engaging this in a way that brings honor and glory to God. So be honest about how sin has corrupted your work and make changes when necessary. Number three, appreciate the value of work as a spiritual discipline. This is something that can always be done. Appreciate the value of work as a spiritual discipline. What do I mean by this? Well, think about what a discipline is. A discipline is something that you do so that you can do something else. If you are, if you're an athlete, or if you've ever been an athlete, you've been involved in sports, then you, you, discipline, you, you do these drills, right? You do these routines in order to enable you to perform in the game. So you might, you know, go out to your driver, go out to the court, and you may shoot 200 free throws every day. You practice dribbling the same way. You dribble three times a spin. You dribble once more, three, one for the Trinity. doesn't hurt, you know what I mean? And then you think about it for a second. You pause, you bounce three times, you lift, and you shoot. You may do that 200 times a day. And the point isn't to get to a point where you can hit 200 free throws in a row in your driveway. The point is to turn yourself into the kind of person who in a game situation can stand up at the line when the crowd is roaring and there's all sorts of lights and sounds going on and you can tune all that out and it's such a routine for you. It's such a muscle memory thing that you just quite naturally get up there, do your three-in-one routine. Again, Trinity, help me out. You spin it, you bounce three times, you lift up, you shoot it and it goes in you know, almost every time. Or in, in, in music, you know, you, you practice the same scales over and over again. Why? If you're playing the piano. You know, you, you practice the same, same rudimentary techniques all over, you know, as you continue to progress. Why? Not so that you can get up in front of a group of people and practice the scales, but maybe so that you can come up here on a Sunday morning and lead God's people in worship. And you can look at the notes and know what to play. So you discipline yourself, meaning that you do something in this instance so that you can do something else. So what do I mean accepting work as a spiritual discipline? What I mean is this, that you can actually take the difficult things that are going on around you and turn those into opportunities for you to become a more Jesus-like person. It's a very simple process. You ask yourself two questions. What are some of the difficult situations that you're facing at work? Or I have this you for C facing. That was for students. You can erase for C that you are facing at work. What are some of the frustrations involved right now? And then how can these frustrations become opportunities for growth and spiritual maturity? Maybe your frustration is there's somebody around you that has an annoying habit, or there's somebody around you that's just mean and hateful and you can't do anything to control it. This is your opportunity to learn patience. This is your opportunity to, you know, learn um, to not be in control. Or maybe there's somebody in your, in your, you know, vicinity work context that has a habit that you do need to go and talk to them about, but you don't like having awkward conversations. This is your chance to become the kind of person who can have a not fun conversation for the sake of the greater good. That's a good thing. Now, it may not seem as like, like cool or sexy as, you know, shooting free throws or playing on the piano, but at the end of the day, these are virtues, this is Christ-likeness. This is the Spirit-forming, Christ-centered character in you. And so whatever's going on in your work situation, whether paid or not, recognize that this can become a spiritual discipline for you. I remember reading a book when I was um, a young guy just about to get married, and I still remember, um, I don't know if you remember this, but I remember Mark Scott did my married, premarital counseling with my wife Beth and I, and we sat down the first meeting, and we both, um, you know, we, we told 
I told them our stories. And we both come, I'll spare you the, the sob story, but we both come from broken past, very loving families, but at the same time broken. And so we talked about all these various things that had happened to us. And I remember uh, he leaned back in his desk and he did the, the Mark Scott chin rub. And then he said, man, you guys have every odd stacked up against you now, don't you? <laughs> and I remember we were thinking, why did you just say that? I'm so scared right now. But at the end of the day, it was helpful because we felt like we did, and he was able to say to us, yeah, you kind of do. And then he and some others recommended a book to us called Sacred Marriage. And this is a book that talks about what if marriage is not just designed to make you happy, but to make you holy. And for me, I remember this because, like I said, like, don't think less of me. I'm a total nerd. Before I got married to Beth, I thought about becoming a monk. I thought, like, I think I would enjoy that. Like, just, you know, wearing a robe and learning to say home, whatever you do when you're a Christian monk. I don't know. And so I thought about this. And then in this book, he talks about how, you know, we look at these monks as these super spiritual people because they wake up at 2 a.m. to say the morning prayers and so on and so forth. And they devote all their lives to spiritual things. And then when you're over here in marriage, you've got this person that you're trying to live with that doesn't know how the toilet paper is supposed to go and wants to put the mini blinds in the wrong direction. And these are opportunities for you to be, and especially when you become a parent, waking up at 2 a.m., you're not waking up to pray. You know what I mean? (laughs) Becomes an opportunity for spiritual growth. And the same thing can can be true of work. So recognize and appreciate the value of work as a spiritual discipline. Uh, Number four, see to it that your work genuinely witnesses to the gospel. See to it that your work genuinely witnesses to the gospel. There's two ways I think this is true. First of all, I think you can witness through your work, as in witness through the work itself. If this verse isn't on there, I want you to write it down, 1 Thessalonians 4, 11, and 12. And in this verse, Paul talks about living a quiet life, working with your hands so that you may win the respect of outsiders. This is an evangelistic life. Not just that you're, you know, knocking on doors all the time, but that you're working well, that you're working hard, that you're going about your business with integrity. And in this sense, working can become in itself a witness. But living it out alone isn't enough. And so this is where we need to recognize that working, witnessing through our work must also become witnessing at work. Now, when I was uh, growing up, I remember the two things I was taught. My, the, the Christian view of work that was given to me, this is all I was taught was, uh, first of all, have integrity, which that's not bad. And secondly, tell people about Jesus. Those are great. Now, obviously, since then, I've tried to develop this a little bit more, right? So, okay, if I'm not lying and I'm telling people about Jesus, is that it? No, that's not it. There's a lot more. But at the same time, those things are still present. And there's a sense in which you have your job because God has put you in those people's lives so that you might have an opportunity to share the good news of Jesus Christ with them. It's not that we're putting targets on people's backs. It's just that we recognize we want the best for everybody around us. You know what? This is weird, but you know, the one, the one reason I miss high school, it's been like 15, 16 years since I was in high school. One reason I miss high school is because it was the last time I was surrounded by non-Christians. Because I went from high school to Ozark Christian College, where I was surrounded by mostly Christians. And then I went from Ozark Christian College to working at Real Life Church, where most of my day was spent with mostly Christians. And I went from Real Life Church back to Ozark Christian College, where most of my day is spent surrounded by Christians. And that's fine. And my ministry is an edification ministry. And I understand all that. And I've always had opportunities for evangelism in and around the edges. But I miss what some of you have which is being in a context where you're constantly rubbing shoulders with people who, aren't, who don't know the salvation that's offered in Christ, who don't know the life that Jesus provides for us. So I know it doesn't feel like this wonderful opportunity, but take it from someone who has to live their whole life around Christians. It's a blessing for you, and it's an opportunity for you to get to hang out with people who actually need to hear the gospel. So witness at work. 
Um, now I can, oh, uh, Z, we have a parent that needs to get their child and the number is 03810. I pray to God that's not my kid because there's not a whole lot I can do right now. You know what I mean? Um, 03810, if that's you, if you would go ahead and step out and get your child. And if anybody else has to go to the bathroom, you can step out too now so that they don't feel bad. We're not going to know which one has to like, you know, go to the bathroom, which one has to go get their kid. It just makes it happen for everybody. Let me ask this. I can go really fast or I can take my time. Do we have any other questions that have come in, Mark? A couple. Okay, I'm going to go fast through these uh, pretty quickly. Number five, commune with God while you work. This is what separates us from the animals, right? Uh, when a lion, like, does its lion thing, it's worshiping God, whether it realizes it or not. When a spider kills all the other little bugs, we may hate the spiders, but they're, they're glorifying God by doing what they've been put out here on earth to do. But they don't get to articulate that. They don't get to enjoy God's company in that regard. We get to work with our hands, and we can also, we also have the opportunity of communing with him while we're at work. And I know this is totally cheesy, but if you're a parent, I think you'll understand what I'm saying. Tune into his smile. How many of you, when you're hanging out with your kids and like your little son's like building a tower and he's just going about his thing, you just think it's the coolest thing in the world. It's just like a bunch of colored circles, you know? But it's awesome and you're smiling and you're just so happy about this and he's totally half the time unaware of the fact that you're so giddy. And what I wanna say is God sometimes looks at you with that same smile and we as adults can tune into that smile. Talk to him about what's going on during the day. Even if you don't have time to say anything, if you're not the kind of person that can work with your hands like while you're welding stuff and think in your head other things, don't try to think other things. Just weld. But every now and then, just acknowledge that you're in the presence of God. Commune with God while you work. And number six, work hard. God is not honored by lazy work. He isn't. And we weren't made to work soft. We were made to work hard. And this, again, comes out of Colossians 3. A lot of this comes out of Colossians 3. And we were told very clearly, work hard. Work with all the energy that you've got. You were not made to be lazy, and when you act lazy, when you don't work, you actually become something less than what you were designed to be. I think in the fullest sense of the word, you become less human. I'm not saying you're a monster. I'm just saying in some sense, you become less human, and you will have less joy, and you will look upon your life with less satisfaction, so work hard. Number seven, put money in its proper place. We talked about this earlier, so I can briefly mention it here. Put money in its proper place. Money is good if viewed and used properly. Many of us have heard that money is the root of all evil. Hear me say this, that's not biblical. What Paul says in 1 Timothy 6 is, for the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. That's a very different statement. Money's not the root of all evil. The love of money is the root of all different kinds of evil, but money is good if viewed and used properly. So to summarize what I said earlier, work not to accumulate for self, but to care for others. Number eight, do everything necessary to avoid idolatry at work. Do everything necessary to avoid idolatry. Here's some of what we idolize at work. Sometimes we idolize work itself. Uh, we look to production or accomplishment or results in order to give us value. I'm having the opportunity to preach this Sunday here at CCO, and we're talking about whether or not each individual is valuable. And I'm talking in there about how one of the ways we, the world tells us you're valuable if, the world says you're valuable if you do, if you produce, if you accomplish, if you generate results. How many of y'all like to-do lists, Right? I'm gonna share my to-do list. I'm a little nervous about this. I'm gonna share part of my to-do list with you guys on Sunday because I'm a to-do list person. I'm the kind that will go back and add things to the list just so that I can mark them off because it makes me feel good. You know what I mean? That's probably idolatry. So we idolize work itself. We idolize our particular work or we idolize what our coworkers idolize. It's always good probably once a year to stop and look around you and ask, what are the five top priorities of most of the people in my office? And are those good or not? And do I share them or not? That's not a bad exercise. So uh, pay attention to what we idolize. Also, here's some things on how to detect idolatry. I want to make this very simple. 
Are you pushing Jesus out? Are you finding yourself saying, Jesus doesn't have a place in this industry, task, whatever it may be? Are you pushing him out? And are you crowding life out? If you're cheating some other aspect of your life, be it your spiritual disciplines or your family, your wife and kids or your husband and kids or your parents or sisters or whoever you're responsible for, if you're cheating other areas of life, then work is probably becoming an idol for you. Building on this, number nine, maintain balance between work and rest and play. Now, I'm not saying that you should do all of them in equal parts, but I am saying that you should do all of them. And we all know that the most, that the, one, of the, the, the ten, the one of the Ten Commandments that we most often disobey is keep the Sabbath. Now, for us, it's not a legalistic, you know, sundown on Friday to sundown on Saturday, but it is still a principle that is consistent throughout Scripture. We are made to work and we are made to rest. And I would add, because of Scripture, we are made to play. And if you don't have all of them, then none of them can be worshipped. I need you to recognize that that's true in every direction. If you don't have all of them, then none of them can be worship because you're idolizing something other than God. Uh, I'll mention my last point at the very end as kind of a wrap up. What questions do we have? We probably have time for maybe just a couple. Do we have time for a couple? We need to get out of here now. Lost the ability to do the work you love and uh, feel you were called to do, and now you have no career path. How do you move forward? Man, first of all, my heart goes out to you. I don't know how old you are. I don't know if you're a man or a woman. I don't know what it is that you felt called to do or why it is you found yourself unable to do it. But I think my first response is to mourn with you this result of sin. That's what this is. Not your sin, but it's a result of like the way in which sin has messed up the world. This wasn't supposed to happen, uh, but it did. So where do you go now? I think at some level, as hard as it is, and I don't mean to sound insensitive, but obviously I don't know the particulars, you start over. And you start by asking yourself, okay, uh, same questions that we answered to your question back here, ma'am. Who am I? What am I capable of? What am I interested in? and, And start with this. If you're in this position, I want you to focus on this question. What needs do I see around me that I can fill? Start there. And then, um, and then we'll see where it takes you. You also need to be engaging in community. You need to be regular in the word and all those things that are obvious. But I would say specifically, start with, look around you, what needs are present that you can do something about and jump in. Even if it's not what you want to do, just jump in. You may find that you love it or maybe redirect it back to what you wanted in the first place. Just jump in. The, the, I think it's uh, Psalm 37, 4 says, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Whether that's what you wanted before or whether he gives your heart a new desire, I think that that, uh, that, that verse is definitely true. Is it okay to store up money for ourselves later in life? Should we be planning ahead like that? Is it okay to store up money for ourselves later in life? Should we be planning ahead like that? It's hard for me to say yes because, like, literally the statement starts with a paraphrase of Jesus' statement, don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth. This is a complicated issue, and what I would suggest that you do is come back the week in which we're doing a Q&A, and I'm going to actually punt it directly to Mark Scott, and we'll see what he has to say on this. Uh, no, but simply put, um, I don't necessarily, th- I mean, I have life insurance, um, I, have, um, I, have, you know, I have a retirement, and I, my, so obviously, by definition, I don't think these things are sinful, but I think it's a very fine line. 
I think that this is a part of how I take care of my family because if I don't, I recognize the church is gonna be there for us and God will provide for us, no question. But if I do, then, then the church isn't necessarily gonna be burdened even if something happens to me. That may be a lack of faith on my part, but I think at this point in my life, based on where my conscience is and what my communities confirm for me, uh, my sense is that I'm not, I'm not outside the will of God. Yeah. You say as a, as a what? That's what I thought. As a working mom, how do I, ask me the rest of the question again. How do I go about viewing my job when it's hard to balance it all? Man, um, again, I don't know the situation. I don't know if, if, you, if you are a single mom or a married mom. I don't know if your husband works as well or if he's at home. And all of those, of course, factor into this. But let me just, t- let me just guess that you and your husband both work or that you're, you're doing this on your own. And so in some sense, you're also a primary caretaker, even if, you know, daycare, other friends, that kind of thing. How do you balance it all? Um, Honestly, probably one of the most important things for you to do is to remember that um, life is seasonal and that that not every day is going to look like what you want it to look like, but that you've been given this particular season to accomplish particular things. And I think what I want to say is, here, here's the principle, and this isn't everything, but I hope this helps. No, 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 the same thing shouldn't get cheated every time. So um, if you have a job, and I assume you need to have that job to provide for your family, you shouldn't always cheat the job, you understand. But the opposite is also true and perhaps even more important. You shouldn't always cheat your children for the sake of your job. Um, so no one should get cheated all the time. And I recognize that's so minor in terms of probably the complexity of your situation, but I hope that's at least a start. And given that I'd be guessing, that's probably about all I can say at this point. Let me make my last point and then I'll get off here. Number 10, focus is on serving humanity for the glory of God. Focus on serving humanity. That's the question. How can I serve people for the glory of God? That's what you're made for. What way can you serve? Even if it's not directly, you know what I mean? Even if you're like a tank manager or something, focus on, you know, how you can serve humanity for the glory of God. And if you can't in your particular profession, then get out. But if you can, then keep doing it. Do that in the long term, the there and then, but also do that in the here and now. I remember not too long ago, my phone messed up and I went to Sprint to get it fixed and I had a wonderful experience. And it was while I was preparing this thing and I'm thinking to myself, I don't even know if this lady knows Jesus, but she's glorifying God because she's fixing my phone. She's serving humanity for the glory of God. And so in that sense, whatever you do, whether you are a mom, dad, a working mom, working dad, whether you're a lawyer, coach, across the board, serve humanity for the glory of God. And I think that we'll be fulfilling our purpose at some level as human beings with regard to work. Michael might make it one day as a teacher, huh? Hey, there's a couple of questions that are real pragmatic. We've been getting a lot. Uh, You're looking to get Wednesday night's information. You want to re-listen to this. You want to go through notes. When you go to our webpage, ccochurch.com, you'll see the Corrective Lenses logo come up on one of the screens that flashes across your computer. Click it. It'll take you right to the page with everything you want. People are looking for drop-down menus. It's not there. Click the icon. It'll take you right to it. There's a section to the left that says Wednesday night, section to the right that says Sunday morning. And uh, I'm excited. Michael will be bringing the message this Sunday morning. And next week, we're going to talk about community. What is our worldview to be about community? We stress you out tonight with the 78 things you need to do when you go to work tomorrow, right? And you're like, ah! And now I'm going to come back and say, okay, and not only that, but you've got to add this big component of everybody. 
remember the word that Michael used. It was a profound word, compartmentalize. When you say, I've got to have my own world figured out, and I've got to be part of community, and I've got to be a parent, you're missing the point. It's a holistic approach to living this life. Remember, God has given us everything we need in Christ Jesus. So don't be stressed. Be faithful and take the opportunities in front of every one of us, and we'll see what God does with it. Hey, really good news. That call from the early childhood education was a real touch-and-go situation with one of our young people. It was a breathing issue, but Brad just gave us the good word. The baby's fine, and we move forward. So God answered our prayers during that time of stress, and I'm grateful for that. You guys have a great week, and let's go do good work for the kingdom. Thank you for listening to a Wednesday night class from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these classes or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com.